Good morning. Good Monday morning to you. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. Glad you could be with us today. I want to talk about cybersecurity today and some of the recent attacks that have been in the news. Students and teachers at Rochester Public Schools finished last week without the internet because of suspicious activity on the district's technology network. There is no word yet on what information was stolen, but the district says there's no evidence yet that the data is being used for financial fraud or identity theft. Now, that incident comes after a hacker group called Medusa stole the personal information of students and employees in the Minneapolis Public School District. As I talk with my guests this hour about this, I want to hear from you too. Were you affected by the school cybersecurity attacks here in Minnesota recently? And what questions do you have in general for our guests about protecting your personal information online? You can call us this hour at 651-227-6000. Again, that number is 651 651- 227-6000 or call 800-242-2828. Before we jump into that, I want to talk to Chris Farrell, our senior economics contributor here at NPR about the top economic news. And uh, Chris, uh, let me make sure I have this right. It seems like the economic numbers have been pretty good, but uh, the discussion about the economy's prospects still getting gloomy, gloomier even. I know. And this is what I, I spent a lot of my weekend on. It was just sort of, you know, puzzling over this because look, the economic data is good. You know, we have a half-century low in, in unemployment rates and continued job growth, and more people are working, and people are getting paid more. Mm-hmm. So my response is, so what's the problem? And then there's this, this really important set of numbers that I just want to emphasize. The gap between black and white unemployment rate, it, has, it's, it shrunk to its narrowest level on record in March. So the black unemployment rate fell to 5% last month, and that's the lowest it's been going back to the early 1970s. That's nationally. That's nationally. So black unemployment, it's still 1.8 percentage points above the rate for white Americans, but it's the smallest gap we've seen. Plus, Mm -hmm. just a few more numbers just on this. Mm -hmm. Share of employed blacks rose to almost uh, 61%, and that's the highest since 2000, and both black men and black women saw gains. So... uh, you know, this is these are signs of a strong economy. Consumer spending, you know, look, it's held up well. It's slowed down, but it's held up well. And so, this discussion of recession seems like, no, this economy is continuing to grow. Right, but but there is a big but, and that's right. <laughs> so there is this gloom out there, and the gloom has been growing uh, really over the past week, and it's about inflation. And a, and a good way to encapsulate it is the Wall Street Journal does this survey of economists. And what the uh, what the survey show is that the economy is just too resilient, inflation staying too high. And so uh, economists are still forecasting that we're going to sink into a recession. Uh, they put the probability about 61% over the next 12 months. And um, there are some mm-hmm. other areas where you can get worried about, which is like OPEC plus, you know, they've uh, cut back on production. So the price of oil is going back, uh, going back, back up. up. Mm-hmm. The Fed staff, they're predicting a, a shallow recession sometime this year. Banks, you know, they're kind of pulling back. They're kind of, you, Angela, you go to a bank and they're not as eager to loan to you because of the repercussions of the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, a little tightening of credit. So there is this, this atmosphere of the recession is coming. But here's part of my problem, Angela. This atmosphere, you know, if you go back to 2022, we were supposed to be in a recession by this point. Now we just pushed out the recession. At some point, people are going to be right. But right now, 
the job economy is not saying recession. What about uh, the uh, real estate market? Um, the snow is starting to melt. I can see more houses now. <laughs> the big snow banks are not blocking the view of them. Uh, what do we know about the real estate market? How is it going? Yeah, so I, I don't know my flowers, but something's blooming right now that people are talking about. So at least we'll see something. <clears throat> so the housing market this is not a technical term, but the housing market is okay. Uh, it's it's not doing great. It's down, but there's no collapse like we saw in uh, 2007, 2008. And uh, the data that comes out from the Minneapolis St. Paul Realtors, what they're saying is, look, home prices have flattened out uh, over That's the past good. year. The Metro's median sales price is 355000 mm-hmm. And buyer and seller activity, and this is the key, buyer and seller activity down around 25%. From year ago levels, and the main reason that's a that, lot isn't that it? they give that's a lot, mm-hmm. and the main reason they give higher interest rates. It's just simply a deterrent for uh, you know people to be buying a home. And the other thing is, if you are a homeowner and you have a low interest rate, do you really want to be selling your home now because you're probably going to move somewhere else and you know be borrowing at a higher rate? So these higher interest rates really are having an effect on the housing market. And uh, so people are just sitting tight. And um, if you look at the the monthly payments uh, for houses, what are we seeing there? Oh, this comes, calculations comes from a calculated uh, risk blog. And I just think it's so if you go to April 2021, so you're two years ago, and you had bought a $500,000 home, 20% down payment, your mortgage was about 3%, and so your your monthly principal and interest, almost 1700 right? Okay. Now, you buy that same house now. Um, home prices are up 23% over two years, mortgage rates, six, almost six and a half percent. Your principal and interest payments, 3,000 a month. So wow. that's an 81% wow. increase. And I think that number right there, you know, going from 1,700 to, um, 3,000 for the same home just tells you why this market is slowing down. Uh, I heard a report earlier this morning about uh, banks, uh, a a number of big banks uh, reporting good earnings. Is that because of the higher interest rates too? Yes. Oh, they, you know, making loans at a higher interest rate. uh, They're liking that. The other thing is the banks that have been reporting their earnings, like JP Morgan Chase, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, they're benefiting from a flight to too big to fail. So if you're nervous about your bank deposits, you're thinking, well, we know JP Morgan's not going to, the government will never let JP Morgan fail, never going to let, uh, Citigroup fail. So we're going to put our money into that bank because we know it's safe. So they're also this sort of beneficiary of a flight to too big to fail. And as we look at uh, what's happening in Congress, uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy uh, will be on Wall Street uh, later this morning making the Republican uh, case for the party's position on the debt ceiling, uh, that debate about the debt ceiling. And what do you think will come out of these meetings or or what we'll see? Okay, so here's my hope. Here's my hope that uh, McCarthy gets the message that creating an unnecessary fiscal crisis threatens the financial system. It threatens the economy unnecessarily. If you think about U.S. Treasuries, it's the foundation of the global financial system. U.S. Treasuries is the quote-unquote safe asset in every retirement savings plan. Money's been going out of bank deposits into uh, money market mutual funds. They get that higher rate. Well, again, U.S. Treasuries make a big part of the money, money market mutual fund industry. So hopefully the message that he gets is this is not a good idea. 
I don't know if that's going to receive that message, but I think I hope that's the message that he gets. Our conversation for the rest of the hour is about cybersecurity. Uh, how is the market for cybersecurity jobs? Because that falls within that tech industry. We've talked about the the layoffs there, but also the hirings. Um, the high tech sector has been laying off a lot of people. It's a lot of people. Last number I looked at over the past two years, 300,000 jobs. But there's a lot of hiring going on in artificial intelligence, and there's a lot of hiring going on in cybersecurity. Um According to Cybersecurity Ventures, the number of unfilled jobs in the U.S. remains at around 750,000 in those positions. So, you know, if you uh, if you have the talent, um, I think cybersecurity is just one of those industries, sad to say, and it really is sad to say because there's so many tragedies associated, is going to grow. But that's a, there's a need for there people. There is a real need for people. I think a lot, Absolutely. Of, a lot of young people, college grads, are, and folks who are looking at career changes are looking at that cybersecurity that's right. sector. Okay, well, we're going to learn more about that. Chris Farrell, thank you so much. We'll talk again next Monday. Thanks a lot. All right, now to learn more about the recent high-profile cybersecurity attacks that have been in the news recently, I have two guests joining me, as I said a few minutes ago go. Uh, students and teachers there in Rochester. Uh, public schools finished last week without uh, access to the internet because of suspicious activity on the district's technology network. And this comes after a hacker group called Medusa stole the personal information of students and employees in the Minneapolis public schools. So to give us a better understanding of all of this, Eric Brown is here. He is the founder and managing partner of IT Audit Labs in St. Paul. He's responsible for IT security, business development, and risk management. His company helps organizations identify security threats and tells them how to fix their digital vulnerabilities. I like that. I like the way that sounds, Eric. Good morning to you. Thank you. Good morning. Hi. Nice to meet you. We also have Doug Levin joining us uh, remotely. Doug is the national director of the K-12 Security Information Exchange, and that is a Virginia-based nonprofit that helps schools protect themselves from cybersecurity threats. He is joining us from Arlington, Virginia this morning. Good morning, Doug. Good morning. Hi. As I I talk with Eric and Doug, I want to hear from you too, our listeners. I want to know, were you affected by the school cybersecurity attacks here in Minnesota recently? And everybody else, what questions do you have for our guests about protecting your personal information online? You can call us at 651-227-6000. Again, that number is 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. Doug, uh, let's start with you. Why are schools the target of cybersecurity attacks? Now, what makes a school or school district attractive to hackers, Doug? Yeah, it it is, uh, I think, confusing for some people because they think of organizations like banks or uh, financial institutions as being better targets. Uh, but I think there's probably two big reasons, maybe three big reasons that schools are uh, uh, the target of these sorts of cyber attacks. One is uh, that they're disproportionately vulnerable, right? Uh, they They are resource poor. Uh, and do not have the latest technology, and they do not have uh, a lot of cybersecurity expertise. I think the second reason is that even though we don't think of schools as rich organizations, they do, in fact, manage quite a bit of money. Uh, you know, maintaining their facilities, transportation, food service. Uh, they may be the largest employer in some communities, and that is more than enough money to get the attention of cyber criminals. Um, and of course, they also hold a lot of really valuable data about school community members, whether those be uh, parents, educators, or students themselves. And I think maybe the final reason is that 
the services that schools provide are valuable and there is very little uh, appetite for schools having to be knocked offline like we have seen in Minnesota. Uh, and then, you know, parents uh, having to scramble to, you know, take care of their kids. Uh, and so there is a desire to resolve these incidents as quickly as possible with little as with as little disruption as possible. So Doug, what kind of information are we talking about? What could hackers get from uh, school districts? What could they learn about people? Yeah, sure. I think, again, I think people tend to think about, you know, Johnny and Susie's algebra grades are, are of right. no interest, right? And and largely that is true. Uh, but there's two populations really that uh, uh, have data that is valuable to criminals. Uh, the first are the adults uh, involved in the school system, whether they be educators, parents, volunteers, or even contractors uh, with the school district. And of course, um, identity theft and tax fraud, payroll, uh, uh, fraud are all things that happen uh, to uh, victims of school incidents. But interestingly, uh, the the personally identifiable information of minors, of children, is even more valuable to cyber criminals and an identity thieves than that of adults. And that may be counterintuitive to many, uh, but the fact of the matter is that cyber criminals can abuse the identities of children and youth for years and years uh, without being discovered. Mm. And it's only when those uh, children turn the age of majority, uh, apply for a college loan, or maybe try to rent their first apartment and that credit record is pulled and they find out that their credit record has been abused uh, for years and years. Um, adults you know, tend to have uh, folks who are monitoring them. And I'm sure uh, you, like I, have received phone calls from a credit card company saying, hey, did you make this charge? We just want to check. Um, no such thing is happening for uh, children and youth who have uh, their identities stolen. Eric, as I listen to this, uh, it makes me so angry. Uh, do, I mean, this is the work that you do uh, in, in helping people protect themselves and understand what's happening. But doesn't just make you upset? It really does. Yeah. And it's it's nonstop, right? We, we get it at work. We get it at home. We get it over text messages. We get it at phone calls over dinner. The hackers, With, with right. these hackers mm-hmm. just trying to take advantage of us. And so what do hackers do with the information they steal? We, we heard Doug talk about, uh, particularly with the children, before they even start with a social security number, I imagine, mm-hmm. what they can do with that. Can you talk about that, what they do with what some of the information that they get? Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, the way our credit system is set up is credit starts open, right? So you get a social security number and it's open and available for you to use. You don't have to request permission or uh, give authorization to open that credit. So what happens is our social security numbers are floating around and anyone who gets access to that number can use that for malicious purposes. And and as Doug said, could open credit up in your name. So uh, take a loan out. Uh, There's fraudulent uh, tax uh, forms that are filed to to try to get your tax rebate before you do. Um, But there's these malicious actors can really hold on to that number and manipulate it. And what we recommend is freezing that credit so that only you unlock that that credit and it's not available just floating out there for everyone to use. And it, it's just, you know, as I said, unfortunate that credit starts open, but we have to request 
by by working with the individual credit bureaus to freeze that credit. How do you do that? So each of the the bureaus, so there's Equifax, mm-hmm. TransUnion, um, Inovis is kind of the the, the fourth bureau, um, and Experian. There, there are four bureaus, and you can work directly with those bureaus. It's free to freeze your credit. You can go to their website. Uh, there's also, a, I believe, a, an 800 number you can call if you don't have access to the internet. But um, you can work directly with them. It takes about five minutes. So say, this is what happened to me or this is what happened to my child. And so I want to make sure n- no one is able to then use that information for, you know, basically these cyber criminals, right? Mm-hmm. And so what, what do they do? They make note of it and they freeze, as you use the word, they freeze it? Ah, so when you work directly with the credit bureaus to freeze it, you get a a passcode or a pin to unlock that credit at a future date. If you're going to go get a a loan for a home Mm -hmm. or a car or what have you, um, you'll unlock that credit for a period of time. And you can specify that time if it's a week or two weeks or a month. And you essentially unfreeze that credit for that period of time to get your loan. Mm. And Doug, do you find that, that these cyber criminals, do they typically wait a little bit? Like they may, may not do anything with the information immediately, but then in six months, a year or two years, then they use it. Does that happen? It does. It does indeed. Um, there are actually robust marketplaces where this information is sold and resold. Um, and so, you know, if individuals uh, are not monitoring uh, their uh, credit record or their bills very closely or access to their accounts, um, it is absolutely the case that, um, you know, this, this can go on for quite some time. I think the other thing to note in this context is that schools, districts, hold a lot of historical information. And so it is not just current students and staff that may be at risk, but we've seen school districts that have uh, ended up exposing data stretching back 5, 10, even 20 years ago, right? So um, it can be you know, pretty challenging if you're a victim of one of these incidents, but you had last had an association with that school district 10 years prior. Right. And so you may never know that this is uh, happening. So I guess I'm sort of adding insult to injury here. Uh, but it is it is a real tough situation. Yeah. But we need to know, which is why I, I want to talk about it. And, and Eric, we know um, that the, the hacker group Medusa admitted to stealing the, the data from Minneapolis public schools. And so how can the group uh, get away with with stealing personal information? And, and, you know, and on top of that, you know, Medusa demanded one million dollars from the district and, and then um, uh, reportedly posted the personal information it stole to the dark web when the district didn't uh, pay up. Um First, Medusa. Come on. They named themselves. And then what, what do we need to know about uh, that hacker group, Medusa? Sure. So uh, hacker groups like Medusa, and, and there are many others, are they exist for profit. And they're either nation-state entities, which uh, there are nation-state hacking groups from North Korea, Russia, China, other countries as well, that do this to get money to fund their illicit activities. And then there's other groups that are like Medusa that are doing it for profit. And these individuals, it's a highly structured group of individuals that work together just like it was a business to go after these softer targets. And unfortunately, right now, schools are softer targets for the reasons that that Doug mentioned at the beginning of the call, where they're typically underfunded in the area of information security. 
And what do we know about the dark web? And, and when we say dark web, what are we talking about? So the, the dark web is and, and dark net may be interchangeable, um, where the dark web is a place on the internet that you get to through an anonymous browser. And this can get really technical really quickly. So I'll, I'll just give a, mm-hmm. a, a high-level overview here. Thank you. <laughs> um, it, essentially, to, to access sites on the dark net, you would go through, uh, an example is the Tor browser or the Onion router browser. It's, a, it's simply a, a web browser that you use that goes through multiple hops and each hop that it goes through is encrypted. So if you don't want someone to know who you are, you're going to essentially connect through multiple hops to get to your end destination. So when, when we surf the, the web regularly, you know, like, like we are mm-hmm. now, um, our computers have an IP address associated with them. And they're talking to other computers along the way. Well, on the on the dark web, you're doing the same thing, but each step along the way is encrypted so that the next computer doesn't know who you came from or where you came from. So they're operating on this dark web, and that way they keep the 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 person connecting and the person who's hosting the data anonymous through encryption. And over the last few years, uh have have has activity on the dark web grown a lot? Yes, absolutely. There are over seven thousand of these exit nodes, and we've got a podcast at IT Audit Labs that dives deep into the the dark web. If you want to see an example of it, okay. but um, it, it has grown, and there are legitimate reasons why you would want to go to a site on the dark web. It doesn't have to just be for illicit. Uh, behavior, you could be in a country that is restricting freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. And um, you could be facing punishment if you go to a site on the regular internet. Uh, Doug, what do you want people to know about the dark web and, and what has happened with it in the last few years? I mean, I, I, I think there is a bit of mystique about what it is. Um, I think you know, you do access it through or you can access it through a browser that looks just like uh, any other browser that you'd be uh, using. The Tor browser itself is based on uh, a product I use called Firefox web browser. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it is not indexed in the way that, you know, Google or Bing index the quote unquote clear web or clear net. Right. And so um, there is it is. uh so it can be trivial to get on it. Um, I think Eric is absolutely correct in that it does a good job of obscuring uh, who is coming and who is hosting to these sites. Um, and many of these sites sort of bounce up and down uh, as well. So it can be very difficult uh, to trace uh, these criminals because this is primarily how they use, um, you know, how, how they uh, attack uh, organizations and how they distribute information about these attacks, uh, but thankfully, uh, you know, through through other forensic work, we are able to, you know, learn more about who these groups are. And actually, over the last couple of months, we've been encouraged because the U.S. government and our allies have done uh, a good job of bringing down uh, some of these actors, uh, even though they're operating in countries that we do not 
generally cooperate with. If you're just joining us, we're talking about cybersecurity and cyber criminals and, and, and hackers. Were you affected by the recent school cybersecurity attacks here in Minnesota with Rochester Public Schools or Minneapolis Public Schools? And uh, what questions do you have in general for our guests who are both cybersecurity experts about protecting your personal information online? You can ask them anything. Call us at 651-227-6000. Again, that number is 651-227-6000 or call 800-242-2828. Uh, Doug, when I, I think about the, the business that you do, uh, again, you're the national director of the K-12 through Security Information Exchange. And this is what you do. You guys, uh, you're a nonprofit that helps school districts protect themselves from cybersecurity threats. What do you tell schools about how to handle a situation like the one that we saw with Minneapolis Public Schools, uh, particularly when it comes to, to paying the, the hackers? Should schools pay or not? Well, I, so I think the first thing, Uh, that I would say is that once you are in a position of having been compromised, you're left with a series of very uh, unpalatable choices. There's really no good uh, uh, outcome at that point once you have become a victim. Um, Virtually everyone in, in law enforcement, many cybersecurity experts will be very clear that paying an extortion demand is not a good idea. Uh, first, you're you're trusting the criminals that they will be good to their word and not uh, abuse the information that they may have already stolen or the access that they may have already um, uh, taken uh, to your systems. Um, secondly, they are going to use that money then to fund their operations to turn around and target, uh, you know, neighboring school districts or uh, localities or businesses. Right? They this they are criminals. This this money will be gone. Will be will used for illicit things and to further their activities. However, what I will say is that once you are a victim, uh, you know, you have to balance sort of very real sort of uh, day-to-day operational challenges and safety concerns for your school community, right? Is it is it okay to uh, close down your school system? Uh, is it okay to lose access to uh, valuable data that you need to say run and systems like running uh, payroll, right? Um, and there are, you know, circumstances where school districts uh, or insurance companies on their behalf have made that kind of risk calculation. And while no one is happy about paying uh, a ransom, they felt in their judgment that by um, paying these criminals that that they are doing a better job in serving their community. I mean, that, that uh, you know, remains to be seen, of course. But uh, the best thing, uh, of course, is, is not to become uh, a victim uh, whatsoever. And what typically happens, or maybe each incident, there's nothing typical, Eric, what do you see happen in the aftermath of a cyber attack? Sure. And, and we've helped a few organizations in the aftermath. Um, but typically the way it goes is once the organization has realized that they've been breached, they're trying to understand how that breach occurred. And in some cases, their environment is completely locked up with ransomware. So it's really hard for them to even, even find out. They can't to, to even find out and get back on uh. their systems. Uh, but w- what typically happens if, is Companies that have cyber insurance will call that insurance broker. They'll get a a breach coach involved, and they'll start understanding how that 
breach occurred and what information was disclosed and organizations that hold personally identifiable information. So things like social security numbers have um, regulatory response uh, requirements in which they must notify individuals that were impacted by the breach. So typically what happens is lawyers get involved and they really restrict what information can be talked about publicly. Which we've seen, right? We have. And that's really unfortunate. And as a cybersecurity professional, it, it bothers me because you see what happened in Minneapolis public schools two weeks ago. Everyone clammed up, didn't talk about it, didn't help their neighbors who may have the same vulnerabilities that these very attackers went after. But if if the, the other school districts or other municipalities in the area had that information, they could make sure that, that they were protected. Um, but unfortunately, the, the, the lawyers typically try to restrict that conversation because they just don't know yet what happened. What they're working with. Right? Yeah. Um, and then one, once they do, they'll release information in the case of the, the schools to the individuals who did have their personally identifiable information compromised. And they'll typically get they'll, – there'll be a website, a phone number, and they'll get a breach notification letter and typically an offer for some form of credit protection or credit monitoring for one, two, or three years. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that's all we get in the cases of uh, corporates uh, malfeasance with data. There are sometimes class action lawsuits, like we've seen against T-Mobile a couple of years ago when when they uh, when they were breached. But there is no um, real great way to collectively go after these organizations that have essentially not taking care of our data, right? Some of that falls back on that organization. Do you think um, that there was anything that the school districts could have done differently? Is there something that w- that really made them particularly vulnerable to cyber attacks? Like maybe was there something outdated or just not Absolutely. enough resources, not enough people Absolutely. to protect them? It's a combination of both. And, and it's, it's unfortunate that in some cases with st- school districts, and we saw this with uh, Baltimore County a couple of years ago, where cybersecurity is just underfunded. And, you know, they're concerned about things like student to teacher ratio, which is absolutely something that we should be concerned about. But we don't, as parents, ask the question, what are you doing to protect my child's personally identifiable information? And the more we have those conversations and we elevate that as a concern, the more attention it's going to get. But unfortunately, these systems or these schools are not investing money in information security protection. It's it's tools, it's technology, it's uh, administrative controls, so processes and policies, and it's people to run those systems. You need all of that to do a good job. Doug, I have here in my notes that there have been more than 1,600 1,600 cyber attacks on schools here in the U.S. between 2016 and 2022. I had no idea. And so uh, what what kinds of attacks are these? Are they very similar in, in your experience? Or, 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 or what are you seeing that, that seems to uh, be sort of a, a similar threat in these 1,600 cyber attacks on schools? Doug, are you there? Yeah. So mm-hmm. let's uh, – so there's a wide variety of, of incidents that schools – Experience, and I should note with that number, those are just publicly disclosed incidents. Mm. Um, there are actually 
very weak to uh, no regulations specifically uh, applicable to schools with respect to cybersecurity. Um, and so the laws that, that Eric referred to are state data breach laws. But uh, I think the general sense that, that people have is that schools are probably taking better care of their IT systems and user data than they may be actually doing um, uh, in practice. So that, that leads to uh, you know, a large number of incidents and a large number of incidents never are publicly disclosed. Um, for a variety of reasons. So, you know, incidents like ransomware, like we've seen in, in uh, Rochester, Minneapolis, uh, those are fairly common. Uh, we may see up to a uh, hundred of those incidents affecting school districts in any given year uh, in recent years. And so um, in some respects, uh, they are extraordinary, but from my perspective, they, they follow a, a, a very distinct pattern. And uh, they continue to uh, occur. Um, certainly data breaches uh, occur uh, with, with relative frequency. That is the most frequently type, uh, frequent type of uh, incident that schools experience. In many cases, those incidents are caused by people associated with the school community directly. So educators make mistake, post mm-hmm. information online or email mm-hmm. it uh, by mistake to folks who shouldn't be seeing it. Um, Every school has its Ferris Bueller want to be students themselves who are bored and tech savvy Uh who are turning their (laughs) attention to school networks. Um, And school vendors themselves have actually turned out to be a source of a large number of data breaches. But then schools are also targeted um, for uh, phishing attacks, uh, particularly attacks designed to steal large amounts of money from school districts. They, effect, uh, they face denial of service attacks, attacks designed to knock them offline, particularly during uh, testing season, as it turns out. Uh, and then schools are also abused for their trust in the community with defacements of school websites and social media sites or even uh, online learning classrooms and online meetings, uh, you know, usually with hate speech. Um, and that can be uh, extraordinarily disruptive to a school system. So it is a wide variety of incidents that schools are facing, some of which are caused by insiders, but the most severe of which are caused by cyber criminals. And let's uh, take a phone call now. In Minneapolis, we have Marlene on the line. Marlene, thanks for calling in. Thank you for waiting. And what did you want to say or ask? Hi, Angela. Thank Hi. you so much for um bringing me on. And I have a question for your guests. I wonder if they can answer this. I worked for the Minneapolis Public Schools until 2013, so 10 years ago, mm-hmm. and um, I have not been told that I was part of that breach yet. I just found out from a couple of credit um, people that uh, monitor my credit, they said that my information, including my social security number, birth date, and name, have been found on the dark web. And I'm just wondering, is there any way to know if it was through that breach or how they got that information? Mm, all right, Marlene, hold on there. Um, Eric, I'll start there with you. So uh, her employment ended 10 years ago with Minneapolis Public Schools, but the information may go back many years that was that was stolen. Indeed. So what she could do is, she, well, she'll get a breach notification letter when they send those out, and it's probably 60 days away because they, they have to do all of their findings and then they'll notify anyone who was a, a victim. So it could still be coming because it takes time. Absolutely. Right? Okay. Absolutely. 
Oh, no, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, with her information disclosed on the dark web or, or that, that report saying that she was, it could very well be from this breach. But unfortunately, it could be from other breaches as well. Uh, I would say if the information was recently found, then it is a likely indicator that it could be from this breach. But there are so many breaches out there with social security numbers that it's really hard to pin it down to this one at this point in time. So what should she do? Well, I would start with freezing credit, uh, number one, with with the bureaus directly. Which again is what? Calling and... Going to the website, yeah, for the, uh, the, the different credit bureaus, which are... Innovus, Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion. And once you freeze the credit, it just prevents you from opening new credit. So credit that you already have, it's not going to affect any loans or credit cards that you already have. It's only new credit that you're trying to open. And that's what you want to protect because that's what the malicious actors are going after, right? They're going to open up credit in your name. Mm-hmm. Um, so once you do that, the other really important thing to do is to make sure that you're using a password manager and you're not reusing passwords across multiple sites. And that's really where a lot of these malicious actors can compromise multiple pieces of our information because we're, we're reusing our passwords, right? Like, oh, that's Marlene. Her password. Oh, it's probably this. See, told you. Right. It's That's probably spring 2023 right. exclamation point. Right. right? <laughs> like we know Marlene. Uh, anything you would add uh, the, to this, Doug, uh, what Marlene could or should do? Doug? No, I think that's terrific advice that Eric has given. And I would give the same the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's take another phone call in St. Louis Park. Sam is on the phone. Good morning, Sam. And what did you want to share with us or ask as we talk about cybersecurity threats and hackers? Hi, Angela. Thank you so much for taking my call. Uh, It's a pleasure. I've been listening to you for a long time. Um, Yeah, I have a I have a question on what to do if if you are witness of an institution actually doing things that puts them in danger. I I unfortunately have been a witness of an institution that works as a private privately, but on behalf of the government grossly mishandling sensitive information. I'm, think, I'm, I'm talking about personal identifiable information thrown in the regular trash while, while they have, in plain view, a really big shredder mm. and uh, employees using social media in work computers that at the same time as they're using it that I witnessed, um, getting customers, again, per, uh, personal identifiable information. We're talking about social security numbers driver's licenses, everything. And, and it's just extremely concerning. And, and as, a citizen, as a citizen of St. Louis Park, I, I am just appalled by that kind of behavior. Mm. So who could you report this to? Or maybe is that your question, Sam? What what can you yeah, do? Who, mm-hmm. What can you do? I, I, I try to do as much as I can. But obviously, the police said, well, we, we don't do anything with that, sir. So I, mm. I, I just uh, I hear a what, what do we do? The, the concerned citizen that sees something and, and wants to make sure that everybody's safe. Doug, are, are there uh, good agencies that you could report something if, if you see that something that's happening in your workplace or if you know that, that something is happening that is putting people at risk? What, what should someone do, Doug? Well, it's that's a particularly tough question. So I think, you know, depending on what business Mm. uh, we're talking about here. There are some enforcement agencies that may be of 
maybe interested in in learning, whether that's um, HHS, the FTC, or even the SEC, right? That's going to be tend to be for private companies, particularly larger ones, or maybe uh, healthcare or institutions or hospitals or financial institutions, basically regulated industries. Um, but it does, I think, underscore that this is a leadership and governance issue, right? Um, ultimately, an organization is only going to take it as seriously as that organization values that issue. And unfortunately, I think we see too many cases that, um, you know, leaders either don't understand these issues uh, very well or appreciate these risks or are not willing to spend uh, the money and time to put in, ca- put in place a training regime across an organization um, and, uh, it, you know, ensuring that, that, that practices are, are being audited and, and up to snuff. Um, I don't, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't mm-hmm. want. I want to be careful in terms of giving any advice about about um, being a whistleblower. But uh, unfortunately, it's it is a, a too common a situation, uh, particularly for folks who work in the IT function. So, uh, Sam, our caller, um, Eric says uh, he's he's witnessing it. Uh, documents going in the trash with social security numbers, uh, other personal information, instead of being shredded. Uh, uh, what do you do if you don't if you're seeing something um, that you know will be like a gold mine for hackers and we know people are doing it what could you do like like doug said there's there's probably not a lot you can do in that preventative phase i i do know that you can report identity theft to the federal trade commission there's a a way you can go out and fill a form out um, online. There's also FTC contact information where you, where you could potentially send them a letter or call 877-ID-THEFT is their phone number. Uh, but I think in this individual's um, circumstance, maybe bringing that to the leadership of the organization or if they have a governance and ethics uh, practice in their organization, bringing that to those leaders. Another phone call, this time in Hudson, Wisconsin. Brandon's on the phone. Hi, Brandon. What do you want to ask as we talk about cybersecurity and uh, cyber criminals? Hi, Angela Hi. and Doug and Eric. Great conversation. Um, I My question is just around um, our personal information and data. We're, we're always putting it out for companies that seem to you know get attacked and are targeted. But sometimes we're targeted. So, I mean, I implement a 4321 backup for all of my data. I have it off-site. I, I'm the extreme case. But what can the normal average consumer with our consumer tools do to make sure that in the event something is either hacked through a company or us individually, that we can restore our data lives to where they should be and, and that we come away as unharmed as possible? Hmm. That's Brandon. Any advice there, Eric? What's some proactive things we can do? Sure, and, and I, I like that you're you're using um, a, a multiple backup strategy there, Brandon. And, and I certainly would would encourage that. There are some relatively inexpensive uh, companies that allow for offsite backup from your computer, your laptop, what have you. It stores it in the cloud. You can also back up uh, copies locally. But I think equally important to having your data accessible from multiple places is making sure that how you access that offline or that online backup is through a password-protected 
account that you're not sharing that login and password with any other account. Because if, if a malicious actor is able to breach that online backup site, well, there, there goes your data. So just really getting back to that good due diligence of a one-to-one relationship between a, a, a site that you go to and a login and password. As we talk about websites, I want to let our listeners know uh, Eric volunteered for us to uh, in a, a, a special place to put some very helpful information um, for everyone about how we protect our personal information. And, and Eric, tell people what you've put together and how they can find it. Absolutely. So I, I have to give credit to Casey, who's our, our web designer, and she worked over the weekend to put this site together. But if you go to www.itauditlabs.com slash MPR for Minnesota Public Radio. Uh, we've got a, a list that we compiled here of 10 or 11 things that you can do to improve your personal information security and a link to some of our podcast episodes where we talk about and show you the dark web or give you some tips on traveling, for example, of some of the things that you can do to protect your information security while out and about. And we will, of course, put that on our website, mprnews.org. Org on my show page where you can find it easily again. But give me the website again. Eric. Absolutely. It is www.itauditlabs.com and that's uh, slash NPR. And it's spelled just as it sounds IT for information technology, audit, A U D I T L A B S dot com slash NPR. One thing I want to mention, um, I we here at work have cybersecurity training regularly. Uh, and what do you want people to know uh, about when your company, you know, says you has have this mandatory training? Do it. Absolutely, it's and valuable. It really is valuable, and, and your company will send out these phishing emails where they're trying to trick you into clicking on a mm-hmm. link. Uh, but th- it's really valuable training because it it shows you how these malicious actors are getting in. And uh, Doug probably has the stats as well. But most of the attacks that are getting into organizations are coming in through email, because that's our easiest vector is attacking the people in the organization. And then also a warning to to folks about text messages. That's another way that folks are are giving out their information and getting tricked. And they've got smarter. They have. And unfortunately, we get those text messages and it's got a link in it and we just click that link. And unfortunately, that sometimes leads to a compromise on our personal device, or it takes us to a site that we think might be the UPS site for tracking or uh, another site that we're very comfortable with. And it's trying to get a login and password from mm-hmm. us. And they'll take that information and they'll use that to attack other sites because we don't use different passwords. And we're always in a rush. All right. A lot to go over, a lot to learn. But thank you for all of the information uh, we've learned today from our guests about cybersecurity threats and attack. Tax, we've been talking with Doug Levin there, the National Director of the K-12 Security Information Exchange in Virginia. Thank you, Doug. And Eric Brown here in St. Paul. He's the founder and managing partner of IT Audit Labs in St. Paul. And we will get that website on our website, nprnews.org. If you look for the show page for my show, you'll find uh, all that great advice that Eric and his staff put together for us. Thank you so much. This conversation was produced by our senior producer, Danelle Cloutier. Be safe, everybody. We'll talk again tomorrow morning at 9. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.